So I think, uh, yeah, I, I think the, you know, the American dream can sort of always exist in our hearts, I guess, but in terms of the practical realities of it, I think it, it is dead. Ladies and gentlemen, listeners, everyone out there, Fritz here, back with an episode of America on the Fritz, my podcast about the America of today. During the episodes, of course, I speak to Americans in an attempt to understand this great political experiment called the United States of America and everything that is not going so well with that experiment at this moment in time and in history. This is episode five, and... It's an especially interesting episode, if I may say so myself. It's a conversation that got me thinking a lot. A conversation that gave me new food for thought about the tragic failure of institutionalized American politics in the last decades and the emergence of a space in which someone like Donald Trump could actually win an election and become president of the United States of America. This conversation really helped me understand why so many people voted for Donald Trump. Even people who had voted for Barack Obama before, twice. And people of a similar age and with a similar CV and background as mine. All right, listeners, have a listen yourself and have an open mind while listening to what Julius Krein, my conversation partner for this episode, has to say about the current state of America. Julius is founder and editor of the Boston-based journal American Affairs, and a persuaded Trump voter, at least for a while. So without any further ado, here we go. Listen and learn a bit more about modern America, one episode at a time. We're sitting here in downtown Boston at the offices of American Affairs, the journal that is, uh, well, came out for the first time at the beginning of this year. Julius Krein uh, is behind that journal, and I'm sitting here with Julius Krein in the offices of the American Affairs. Um, hi, Julius. Hello. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, uh, yeah, I came here to have a conversation with you about, I think eventually about your decision to vote for Donald Trump, your decision to start this journal uh, after the elections, and, um, well, pretty much everything that has happened ever since. So let me just start out with uh, the following question. Julius, who did you vote for? Well, in the uh, in the general election, I did vote for uh, Donald Trump. Yes. And why did you vote for Donald Trump? Well, I think to understand uh, Trump's appeal, you really have to think about the failure um, of both parties going back really to the end of the Cold War, uh, and. From the uh, Republican side in particular, um, not only have most of their uh, main policies and intellectual um, positions been sort of discredited by reality, um, I'm talking not only about foreign policy uh, decisions such as Iraq uh, and so on, um, but also uh, things like trade policy, um, their, the monetarist monetary theory, uh, and, and various um, rationales for widening inequality, 
uh, typically um, one justifies widening inequality by pointing out that it will increase productivity, that it will make the pie larger for everyone, whereas in fact what we've seen is declining productivity growth uh, and wage stagnation for 30 years and rising inequality. Um, so I think all those things, um, particularly in the Republican primary, uh, made uh, or created a great appetite for someone like Trump, who really ran as a sort of critic uh, of the post-Cold War consensus, uh, particularly of the Republican Party. Uh, meanwhile, um, on the Democratic side, uh, a very curious phenomenon has happened where the left has sort of become the right in American politics, and it has become a sort of defender of the affluent, uh, of the status quo, uh, and also um, in its own way, many, many things like a sort of failed uh, foreign interventions as in Libya and so forth. And the Democratic uh, candidate in the election was none other than uh, Hillary Clinton, um, who aside from some of her own uh, personal scandals and issues, uh, perhaps most represents the status quo uh, policy for the last 20 some years. So I think that, in a nutshell, is really what motivated a lot of people to take a chance with Trump, uh, and it, it would be at least true of myself as well. So let me just let me say let me take one of the things you just mentioned: um, the growing inequality, and that you know that has just been continuing, um, no matter if Democrat or Republican was in office. Did you did you believe, and do you believe that Trump will? take care of those issues in a fundamental and, yeah, sort of history-changing way? I think he had a chance to. Um, he may still, though it's much more difficult now after his own um, personal failures and scandals uh, and, uh, and failed legislative agenda so far. But the reason he actually he had a chance to was because he um, was so unorthodox and he wasn't beholden to either party's orthodoxy or really constituency. And the things uh, that he stressed um, during the campaign, such as failed trade policies, um, he was also you know, uh, very ambiguous on his position on things like health care uh, and, and things like that. Uh, he had an opportunity to do it. Um, so far, there's been no indication that he's doing anything on those issues and he's probably making them worse. Um, but if, you know, he, he seems to have no conviction. So if he changed his mind tomorrow, who knows? Let's get back to um, where we're, where, you know, where we're going with all of this in, in a bit. But let's first maybe uh, zoom out and, and, and backtrack a little bit. Um, We're sitting here at your office in downtown Boston, uh, from where you run a journal called The American Affairs. Can you tell me how you got here uh, and from where you came? Um, uh, because, you know, the two of us are a similar age. You have worked internationally. You've been to uh, different countries in this world. What I'm trying to say is uh, we have some, some, some stuff in common. and. Um, Still, for me, it is difficult to understand how someone like you could actually vote for Donald Trump. Help me understand how that, um, how that sort of thought train over the years arrived at where we are now. Yes. So um, as you mentioned, I actually, for the most part, have a consummately globalist resume. Um, I spent... Uh, until the last year, I spent my career working in finance um, for various investment banks, private equity funds, and, and hedge fund type firms. 
Uh, and actually, and, and as you said, also a lot of work internationally. Um, and it's actually precisely that experience that has led me to see the sort of failures uh, of the conventional policy consensus that we have been pursuing since the end of the Cold War. Uh, in particular, I would say um, there have been, been basically two experiences. One is uh, I went to um, Afghanistan and Iraq, um, spent about a month in Afghanistan as part of of an effort uh, to encourage economic development there and, and develop investors in local companies and so on. Uh, and what I was able to see there was just the, the gap between the rhetoric um, that had been communicated here in the United States about what we were doing there and the actual reality on the ground, um, both in terms of just a, a grotesquely incompetent development effort, a uh, security situation that was much more complex and not nearly so black and white as terrorists versus good guys or Taliban versus the government and things like that. Uh, and, and, that and, and the fact that most of the population really didn't want us there. Um, and that was, that was a first uh, experience that led me to uh, question a lot of the typical um, platitudes and platforms uh, that were current at that time. Uh, and the second one is just in general working in finance, I had the opportunity as an investor to meet with many large corporate CEOs, CFOs, talking about what they were uh, focused on and trying to do. And I can't think of a single one of those conversations where the focus was on what, what big investments are you making, what new innovative products are you planning to build out. Uh, it was entirely focused on how quickly can you move factories to China, how quickly can you cut costs in order to increase things like share buybacks um, purely to benefit uh, the financial investment community. Uh, and it became clear over time that um, this is actually precisely what's underlying a lot of the weakness in the American economy. Um, and the other thing I would say is, is traveling to a lot of developing countries in Africa in particular, you see many situations where um, domestic local industries actually have no chance to produce because of the free trade uh, sort of orthodoxy that we have imposed upon them. Um, and the only ones that do uh, are the ones that are protected by tariffs. And obviously that's a very complicated issue, but the reality is that if you don't have rising incomes in these countries, then actually the whole free trade kind of approach doesn't really work. You just have a kind of continued um, erosion uh, or, or, yeah, decline of local potential mm -hmm. uh, and, and the export, uh, you can never quite get to a balance and that's why you actually see a lot of the capital flows going in the opposite direction of what the free trade theory would predict with developing countries actually being creditors to developed ones. Um, so anyway, uh, all of these experiences, precisely these experiences at the so-called global elite level, um, I think allowed me to see the fundamental weakness of it. And I would be the first to admit that Trump never really articulated much in the way of a positive agenda to address these concerns, um, but he, he, did, he did acknowledge them. And that is more than any other candidate could do. And had a more responsible, uh, serious person been willing to break with their donor base, been willing to break with this stale ideological orthodoxy, I think things would have gone much differently. Uh, but they didn't, and it's an interesting question why. You said that <clears throat> those years in finance showed you a couple of things that, that opened your eyes. Um, uh, and I know that you originally come from South Dakota. 
which is a, a, a traditionally conservative um, area. But you yourself, traditionally or in those early years, you, you wouldn't have called yourself a conservative, right? Yeah, that's correct. I've always had some kind of uh, contrarian spirit. So when I lived in South Dakota, everyone was Republican, everyone was conservative. Um, I, I tended to, uh, to shift left uh, and, and be fairly critical of uh, conservatism. Then when I went to Harvard, where of course everyone is on the left and liberal, um, I found that, that sort of orthodoxy equally stifling and, and unreflective. And so I, I began moving uh, right. And, uh, and now I guess uh, I'm trying to build a new center. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me, let me, sh let me uh, shoot a couple of short questions uh, to you. Are you a nationalist, Julius? Well, the, the term nationalism has become uh, somewhat tarnished uh, in, in recent years. I, and, you know, it's now often associated explicitly with white nationalism, which I am certainly not and opposed to. But there is another sense of nationalism as a, as a sense of an underlying spirit of political community, I think best articulated by Irving Kristol, who described it as, uh, a sense of patriotism that's not just about the past, but also about the future. And I do think that is very important because if we are going to have uh, any political communities, and I think if we want to have a world that is not just, you know, either the, the domination of global capital or pure individualist egotistic greed, then you have to have a, a strong political community. And you need some kind of communitarian spirit to give life to that. And whether you want to call it nationalism or something else, I think it's very necessary. Can you call it progressive nationalism? Yeah, and, and indeed the early, the first progressives in the American progressives in the early 19th, or excuse me, 20th century were very nationalist. Um, that really was the sort of basis of the early um, American nationalism. I believe Theodore Roosevelt called it new nationalism. Uh, people like Herbert David Crowley and other leading intellectual figures, they were very focused on um, what they thought was saving the idea of an American nationalism from a kind of drifting sort of free market interpretation of the American founding that suggested that the sort of national government couldn't have any purpose, it couldn't do any good in the country or in the world, and so on. And in many ways, I think a lot of those problems have resurfaced now. And yes, I think to a large extent, reviving that early sort of progressive uh, nationalist spirit um, is, is precisely the answer. Another short question. Are you a conservative? I, if, if by conservatism you mean the sort of American conservatism um, associated with sort of Bill Buckley and National Review, often called a sort of fusionist conservatism that combines sort of free market economics with, uh, say, religious or social conservatism, then I am not. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not a conservative in that sense. Uh, if, if you want to call a sort of older tradition which kind of prefers sort of incremental policy changes, um, a, a sense of kind of a larger uh, metaphysical questions and philosophy and, and an appreciation of so-called permanent things, then I, I do have some uh, sympathies in that direction. Would it be fair if I, uh, having listened to, to, to the last couple of answers, uh, to summarize that in, if I wanted to put a political label on you, in calling you a progressive nationalist conservative? Well, if anyone finds any value to such a label, they can, they can call me whatever they want. 
and I'm I'm doing this obviously uh, realizing that you know categorizing is is always you know it helps the human mind I guess but it's never really fair uh, in in the long run. I think what I'm trying to get at is. Um, you know, trying to trying to understand how uh, how someone you know voted for Donald Trump, someone who is clearly interested in the underlying uh, factors of of politics and policies, and very reflective uh, regarding those. For an outsider coming from Europe, you know, in Europe we often are tricked into thinking that in America you have the left and the right, you have the Democratic Party and you have the Republican Party and you're either one or the other. And I seem to have trouble to categorize you as either one. Is that correct? Uh, well, I would take that as a compliment. Um, but, I mean, let's, tr let's just think about it this way, less in sort of um, polemical terms and more in, in a sort of analytical approach. If you look at the last 25 years, uh, is the U.S. stronger in the world or weaker? Is, say, China stronger today? or weaker? Is Russia stronger today than it was in 1992? What about North Korea? Even North Korea seems stronger today than it was in 1992. Meanwhile, again, um, uh, all the economic indicators we talked about before, productivity is lower. Wage growth has been stagnant for, or virtually stagnant for most of that time. Um, my generation, I'm 31, is the first that will, you know, expects to have a sort of worse uh, standard of living than their parents, um, has the largest, people st uh, largest number of people still living with their parents than any generation. Um, I don't know how you can look at those things and say, wow, the status quo is really working great and we need to do more of that. Mm -hmm. um, at the very least, we have to investigate and, and try to better understand what went wrong and why we seem to be going backwards uh, and and exactly which direction that takes in terms of political candidates and stuff um, that can be that can be very complicated but there's no question that there is a deep-seated discontent with most of the major institutions in American politics uh, and you know from what I can tell and what I just said I think there should be and um, is it correct to say that uh The journal that you started, American Affairs, um, is an attempt to lend the type of rational, intellectual, maybe you know, scientific approach that um, you're clearly showing also today in our conversation here um, to this, this, these, these, these politics that are happening um, around us. That you know, your your journal uh, wanted to lend that to what you could call Trumpism. How how would you describe? Um, the reason for, for starting this journal? Yeah, um, the reason was to explore um, the problems and challenges that I just mentioned and that neither conventional political party or ideology seemed to have much of an answer to. Um, you know, there, we, we were happy to take some publicity um, around this, the whole Trump phenomena and stuff, and indeed the fact that he won uh, that election is perhaps the greatest symptom uh, of these issues. And, and to some extent, this was launched in reaction to that. I'd also say that had it influenced the administration, uh, I and I think any, any editor would have been thrilled. Unfortunately, I don't, you know, we, we never really did uh, influence them and, and haven't so far. Um, but it was, it was always been about policy. It's always been, you know, it's legally a nonpartisan 
uh, effort. It, it's, and I think anyone who reads it will see that there's, you know, no attempt to sort of apologize for the things the administration does or whatnot, um, and every attempt to try to seriously think about these problems. And we've had, um, I think, a lot of great contributors uh, from both the left and the right, and more will be coming um, from, from both sides and people that want to think outside of that sort of um, uh, platform. And we also have, I'm quite proud to say, I think a very diverse audience. Um, and it's it's not a conservative publication. It's not a left-wing publication. It's, I think, one of the few attempts in recent years to try to create a new sort of mainstream, if you will, mm. publication that mm. can appeal to a broad array of people. Mm. And at the same time, um, after the administration took office, uh, there was a couple of times where you also did appear in public and um, did continue your public support for this Trump administration. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I think, you know, there's always been um, uh, this line of argument that, you know, uh, or, or there have always been sort of over-the-top attacks on the Trump administration, um, which I um, rejected. And I also think, you know, there has been a lot of the opposition to the Trump administration has intentionally or not, intentionally or not taken the form of you know, the status quo is fantastic. How could anyone ever want to change it? Mm. And as you've seen, um, I, I think that's absolutely the wrong way um, to approach these issues. And, and anyone who's actually serious about, you know, quote unquote, resisting Trump, what they need to do is actually come up with a better alternative and, and not just sort of call all of his voters um, racists or whatnot. Because while there's no question that some of that is there, uh, there's also no question that there are a lot of other things that have nothing to do with that and have motivated a lot of people, including many who voted for Obama the last time around, uh, to change directions. And the reason is because um, right now there's sort of Trumpism, which is a confused, chaotic, and even bad uh, alternative at times, and, and really nothing else except saying how bad Trump is. And that's not an alternative. Yeah. I've read uh, something that you said once uh, a couple of couple of months ago that kind of stuck with me, and that is, um, you said, I quote, Trump looked like an appropriate ve vehicle. Can you uh, explain to me and to the listeners what you mean with an appropriate vehicle? Yeah, I think Trump won the election because he was able to present himself as, as a just quite adequate enough vehicle for uh, a change in the... Uh, whatever you want to call it, neoliberal status quo that that hasn't worked, that has been discredited. I mean, a lot of people talk about Trump won because of social media. He won because he's an entertainer. He won because whatever. Um, and there may be a little bit of that, but I don't think that can possibly explain um, his victory in the election. We've had a lot of weird novelty candidates over the last two years or last several uh, election cycles. They haven't gone anywhere. I think the reason Trump went somewhere um, is because he did actually hit on these core themes mm -hmm. of issues that haven't worked, like trade, like foreign policy, mm -hmm. um, like immigration, like inequality even, mm -hmm. um, and he did, uh, like offshoring jobs. Um, and, and that's, you know, again, I don't think anyone ever, very few people would have looked at him and said, wow, this guy is great, this guy is, uh, you know, an intellectual leader of something. Mm -hmm. I think even... Few of his voters even thought that. But they did see that, well, he had some inkling of these issues. He was willing to talk about them. And that made him a more adequate vehicle than any other candidate. And it might have gotten him into office. Um, at the same time, he, correct me if I'm wrong, pretty much hasn't done 
anything in those areas. And partly due to that fact, I think you have come out uh, a couple of weeks ago with an opinion article in the New York Times in which you said that um, you had actually deluded yourself, quote unquote. Can you explain what you what you mean with uh, with with that you and your 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 fellow Trump supporters voters deluded yourself? Yeah, well, I think um, uh, I at least would say that uh, we probably were a bit too quick uh, to dismiss um, some of the uh, apparent pandering to um, hate groups or you know, these sort of neo-Nazi alt-right types uh, as uh, sort of media mischaracterizations or harmless mistakes or, or uh, you know, just campaign gaffes that, that frankly every candidate makes. Uh, you know, the Clintons have done it. Biden did it. Every, you know, every candidate ends up saying something stupid at various times. Um, whereas I think Charlottesville indicated that he, he does see something deeper um, and, and really want to sort of play to these um, passions, um, which are which are which can be very dangerous. Um, I also think on in terms of the policy stuff. I mean, you know, I we had a, an article in our in the journal actually written by the former chief of staff to Rob Ford, who's the kind of crazy Toronto mayor. You mm-hmm. may remember him had all kinds of problems with yeah, yeah. drugs and stuff, but had kind of a sort of similar story where he actually connected with a lot of the sort of underserved communities that all the, the respectable politicians talked about. He actually mm-hmm. went door to door and talked to them and they liked him. Um, but anyway, uh, as as the author of that article, Ford's former chief of staff said, you know, I think I think Ford probably genuinely cared about them, but had had a you know his own personal demons. Whereas Trump was more a clever marketer that exploited this to get elected. Um, but what's odd about Trump is that he was smart enough to see that, but uh, so far hasn't been smart enough to see. Um, actually implementing any sort of agenda along these lines to actually make him a successful president. And yeah, I mean, his policies so far either haven't gone anywhere uh, for the most part, or they've been suggestions of really going in the opposite direction, such as the, uh, the repealing health care, a very conventional Republican proposal, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the other things he's done around uh, taxes, uh, and even, even his sort of proposed infrastructure bill relied uh, in my opinion, too heavily on tax breaks. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I would say that sort of disappointment with the policies, um, you know, was a, a very big part of my op-ed, and I, I think it's still um, still prevalent. The the the, the concrete event that, that led you to, to writing this uh, opinion article was Charlottesville um, that you just mentioned, uh, which, of course, was the right-wing demonstration weekend that happened in Charlottesville, Virginia. In August, was was that really the concrete reason why you publicly denounced Trump um, as uh, president? Yes, I would call it the sort of uh, immediate cause um, of of the the article. But at the same I mean, time, what, why why that cause? What what had changed? Why did Charlottesville make it um, make it so concrete that that it that it resulted in your public den- denunciation of the president? Sure. Um, I think because in the in the past in the campaign when he when he made these sort of 
gaffes, however distasteful they were, um, he would either actually apologize for it or say it was a misstatement or say the media had uh, misquoted him or something. Um, he gave at least, or at least he allowed people to believe that he didn't really uh, believe in um, pandering to these sort of groups. Um, whereas after Charlottesville, he sort of doubled down on it uh, and, and to me just showed that, um, as I said in the op-ed, uh, either he has some genuine sympathy for these people or, or he is so obtuse as to be incapable of learning from his worst mistakes. Uh, either way, I, I did feel it was a, a concrete change, as did, for example, um, all of the business leaders um, who, who resigned from the sort of White House councils, the head of the AFL-CIO, uh, and many people like that. Let's take it to a little bit of, of, of the bigger picture that, that I'm interested in with my podcast, um, America on the Fritz. Um, it's really about trying to find out what, you know, what is going on with the country, what is wrong with the country right now. I spoke to a uh, very active activist, I want to say, Trump supporter, um, a couple of weeks ago. And um, that person very, very alarmingly sort of, uh, yet in a way well argued, uh, told me that America is as close to civil war as it has been since the mid-19th century. Um, do you share that view? I think that there is um, a, a very serious fraying of our social fabric. I'm not sure if you asked people, you know, what does it mean to be an American citizen? What is the, what is the point of, of having an American uh, nation state, what holds it together. I'm not sure that uh, anyone could give you a real answer to that. Um, and, and that's been frayed both from the right in terms of, uh, of the sort of radical libertarian free market economic policy, which sees everyone as sort of an individual uh, consumer that has no sort of obligations to any larger community. And it's also been frayed from the left, which has, um, you know, placed sort of sub- subdivisions of the American body politic as the uh, main locus of politics. Um, you know, this is usually called identity politics, and uh, people more eloquent than I, like Mark Lilla, have written about it. Um, but I think there, there's no question that neither right or left actually sees, or let me say far right or far left, actually sees much value in the American national community anymore. Uh, and, and so, you know, whether or not we're close to civil war or anything, it, it's, a, it's a tough analogy, uh, I think, for this time. But I do think that the actual uh, political community is more divided and more afraid and, and probably is closer to total break or collapse than at any other time during my lifetime, yes. Another uh, cl question that clearly comes from an outsider, but... Um I've always been fascinated by this concept of the American dream. Well, what's the status of that dream right now? Well, it's curious because I think a lot of a lot of the things one typically associates with the American dream, or say the the reasons why an immigrant would want to come to America, um, are are no longer operative. And in many ways, it's it's probably worse here um, than than in, than in many other places in the world. I mean, if you look at sort of new business startups. Um, they've been going down, right? Uh, like we've already talked about wage inequality and growth and, and economic stagnation. Um, our economy is increasingly cardinalized. Silicon Valley, for example, is, is booming, right, still? Yes, yeah, Silicon Valley is booming, but um, 
it raises the is it booming because of innovation or is it booming because it's basically functioning as either an unregulated monopoly um, or a, a sort of regulatory arbitrage like Uber, which you know doesn't have to follow the rules of taxis, but basically is a taxi service. Um, it's funny because we call these companies tech companies, but in reality, you know, Google and Facebook are basically advertising companies. Um, Uber is a taxi cab company. Amazon is a retail company. It's basically just like Wal it's Walmart of the 1990s. They came up with a better distribution model, and now they're the dominant retailer. That's all it is. The the fundamental internet innovations, all that stuff, that grew out of you know previous uh, activity, really from the Cold War. Most of it underwritten either directly by the government or with significant government and defense department participation. Uh, and we've really been coasting on that um, for the last uh, several decades. And, and a lot of the, uh, you know, even, even things like free speech and, and free expression, I mean, it's true that the state um, is not going to interfere too much with you. Uh, but the corporate, the large internet corporations now have significant control over this, both in terms of deciding you know, what you can put on social media, whether your website can even be on the internet, um, as well as things like uh, consumer data and, and what you do with it. Um, and, and even things like our legal system. I mean, there was a great quote, I can't remember exactly who said it, but you know, somebody said a single digit millionaire has no effective access to the legal system in this country. And that's basically true. And if you look at the number of cases, for example. Can, can, can you explain that? Well, I mean, just the cost of it um, is tremendously high. Uh, I, I mean, to, to be involved in a major trial, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And a lot of even the trial system doesn't really operate anymore. On the corporate side, it tends to be in arbitrations. Yeah. And on the criminal side, I don't, the statistic, it's somewhere over 90%. It may be like 95% of criminal cases don't even go to trial. They're pleaded out. Now, when you have a conviction rate of something 95% plus, that's something usually associated with like a police state. Uh, and that's here in, in the United States. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I, I think the, you know, the American dream can sort of always exist in our hearts, I guess. But in terms of the practical realities of it, I think it, it is dead. You, you've argued that there's hope, though, for the promise of an American life. Yeah, there's always hope. Uh, <laughs> but I think, I mean, still fundamentally, most of these, pro all of these problems can be fixed under the normal political system. It will be difficult. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, it's just changing the laws. Um, you know, we can, we can sign better trade agreements. We can negotiate uh, uh, better, um, you know, one thing I'm very interested in is sort of currency agreements and stuff like that. There's nothing that prevents us from negotiating that other than our own stupidity. Yeah. Um, you know, again, the, the judicial system, all that can be reformed. Uh, and I think even, even on the cultural side, there's a lot of, there's always a lot of pessimism, a lot of apocalyptic kind of predictions, sort of like the Civil War stuff. And, 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 you know, people, whether it's on the left or right, they've come to sort of talking about each other rather than to each other. But I actually think that, you know, not to be too grandiose, but the existence of American affairs and I think the reception it's re received shows that that's not impossible. And I think you're actually seeing now, you know, voices from the left, the right and the center 
um, coming and saying, you know, we need to compromise on more of these issues. And yeah, we need to find a new, what, what, is, what is the promise of American life? What is the purpose of the American national government? Because right now it doesn't have one. Um, and that hasn't served us very well. So I think the fact that people are waking up to these does give me some hope. So to, to, to maybe um, wrap up this part of the interview and to borrow a phrase from Time magazine, is Trump the wrong person for the right job? I think that sounds about right. Um, there, there's definitely a job to do. So far, he hasn't done it. As I said, he's probably made things worse. But these, most of these problems he did not create. Um, the wage stagnation, low productivity, inequality, bad foreign policy, all that was there long before him. Uh, and unless more responsible people um, are, are willing to, to recognize the problems that he exploited and provide better alternatives to them, they will unfortunately be there <laughs> while he's in office and long after it. So coming to uh, the, the last part of our conversation, um, you have had two very exciting, very uh, turbulent two last years, going from uh, deciding to, to support and vote for Donald Trump uh, to become president, to starting uh, your own journal, to, to still publicly supporting the administration, to then denouncing it. You were in the process also attacked quite a bit in, in, in the public, in, in social media. What did that do to you? Like, if you look back at that, how do you, how do you feel about that? Yeah, um, just, just I didn't get to say this earlier, but, you know, the, in terms of defending the administration, I think uh, on the policy stuff, I, if you look at my interviews, I become increasingly uh, critical over time as, uh, as things happen. My, my policy views really have never changed over the last two years. Um, for a time, I thought that Trump might be a semi-adequate vehicle for these things. Um, I changed my mind on that. But the fundamental uh, points of policy analysis, um, yeah. that hasn't changed. Uh, and, you know, in terms of the, um, the social media stuff, I think I've, I've seen the best minds of my generation destroyed by Twitter. Um, it doesn't really bother me that much. Uh, it's, it's sort of that's, that's kind of the nature of our political discourse now. It means that people cared about it. It means it struck a nerve. Uh, and, and it's, you know, that's, that's I, I personally enjoy reading things that I don't like because that's the only way to kind of Uh, learn something. So it doesn't bother me at all, though. I do think that there is a tendency, I think it's a particularly American one, perhaps, but to, to focus on these kind of personal stories and do we like this guy, do we not like this guy, rather than the kind of deeper structural issues. Um, and I think if we continue to do that, that will be, um, that will, that will only increase our problems. I think you're someone that is very good at, at rationalizing things. I'm, I have a lot of uh, respect for, for, for how you deal with these, with these very personal attacks on social media. Um, but rationalizing something like Donald Trump, did, did, that, did that work out for you? Um, well, <laughs> let's be honest. For me personally, it worked out great. Uh, you're, you wouldn't be having this conversation if I didn't that's do right, that. That's right. um, you know, look, if, if people want to blame me for the election of Donald Trump, I guess they can. But the reality is that I actually didn't write a single thing between the primary and the general election. So, you know, how I, I was happy that he, he won the primary. I think the conventional Republican Party needed to be destroyed. I think that's the first step in, in our renewal. Um, but really, Clinton's loss, like, yeah, I don't, I don't see how anyone can blame that on me. And, you know,
know, my vote in Massachusetts, the way the American electoral system worked, it didn't matter at all. So if people want to blame me for the election of Trump, they're welcome to. Um, but it's not actually going to solve any of their problems. Uh, and the only way we get to solving these problems is if we start looking at them seriously. And that's what I've been trying to do from the beginning. So to, to, to ask this last question, and I think I know what you're going to say, was it worth it all? <laughs> well, uh, like the French Revolution, it's too early to tell. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, um, we really have no, no choice, right? I mean, it, I think you can... Predicting bad outcomes from here on out is very easy. That's the direction things are trending. Um, but we sort of have no choice. Uh, we can either try to fix things or we can't. And, you know, we might fail, um, but, you know, to quote the sort of uh, provocative uh, Slavo Žižek, you know, when you fail, the next time you just have to fail better. So. <laughs> I think it's very telling that um, that you end our conversation with a quote from one of the most radical left thinkers um, of our lifetime. I think that uh, that really shows that you have uh, kept an open mind. Um, thank you for talking to me. Looking forward to seeing and hearing more of you and your endeavors uh, soon. Thank you. Hey guys, Fritz here again. That was my conversation with Julius Krein. And uh, that conversation was recorded in September in Boston at the offices of American Affairs. So that's a couple of weeks ago and uh, things have happened since, other things haven't happened since um, regarding the Trump administration um, or what the president has said or has not said, has done or has not done. Um, and the fact that a couple of weeks have passed since our conversation means that maybe some questions or some answers would be phrased differently now and uh, that our conversation just has to be seen in that context this was a longer episode than usual so I'm gonna let you go now but before I do that I'd like to refer you to two sources if you are interested to learn more about Julius Krein and his work one is his journal American Affairs you can find it online it's got a good website check it out and then there is his op-ed article in the New York Times uh, where he explains his reasons for turning his back, if you will, on Donald Trump and his administration. It's dated August 17th in the New York Times, and the title is I Voted for Trump and I Sorely Regret It. So check that out as well. That's it for today. Special thanks to the most talented Lawrence Hebley, as always, for the artwork. Check America on thefritz.com for all kinds of extra goodies like a photo of Julius and myself in his Boston office. And send me your questions and comments if you like. Uh, America on the Fritz's email address is info at americaonthefritz.com. If you like this episode, make sure to rate and review it on iTunes and make sure to subscribe to America on the Fritz wherever you get your podcasts. That's the best way to automatically get the next episode. The next episode is going to be the last episode of the season just before the end of the year and right on time for the holidays. So don't miss it and tune in when I talk to someone who does an amazing job at explaining pretty much everything that season one of America on the Fritz has been all about. The, the, the fury and the anger that you come across all the time, the weird uh, politics that, that we're going through, um, the, uh, the state of the economy, the state of working class people, um, the culture wars, all of this goes back to the same source. I'm Fritz and I'm the host of America on the Fritz. I'll speak to you next time, listeners. Take care until then. Bye.